0: You've heard our open themes with listeners talking about their vocations.
1: Ah. New Hampshire shepherdesses love to listen to issues, etc. Ah.
0: Or what they're doing while listening to issues, etc.
1: New parents love listening to issues, etc.
0: In the middle of the night. We're looking for more of these elements to include in our open themes. Tell us about your vocation, hobby, or what you do while listening to Issues Etc. Call the Issues Etc. comment line 24-7 at 618-223-8382. If you make a mistake, just start over. 618-223-8382. Thanks for listening, and thanks for contributing to Issues Etc. 618-223-8382.
1: 618-223-8382. I think it's important for people to hear how
2: these headlines actually get put out. But I am wondering when you realized that maybe the headline was off and that could be weaponized against Israel
1: for something they appeared to not have done.
3: Uh, that Those are your words, uh, not mine. Uh, you know, I... I the way coverage is used or weaponized by other people uh, is... Let me, rephrase, uh, let me
1: rephrase it then. Let me ask you this. I am wondering when you realized that perhaps the headline had been misleading. That's Lulu Garcia Navarro speaking with Joe Kahn of the New York Times. The headline she's talking about, Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital Palestinians say, it appeared in the New York Times, it was changed. Now, back in the day when you had to physically set type, ...for a newspaper headline to be printed on real paper and then sent out once a day. You couldn't change the headlines whenever you discovered it was inaccurate. You were stuck with that headline for the rest of history. Not so much anymore. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this All Saints Day, November the 1st. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about the New York Times coverage of the Israel-Hamas war with Terry Mattingly of Get Religion. Then it's Issues Etc. Reformation Week, our theme, Paths to Lutheranism. Dr. Ross Johnson, director of LCMS Disaster Response, will join us to talk about his path from American evangelicalism and then Pastor Eric Anderson, his path from Roman Catholicism. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. What are we learning anew about the journalism challenges for those covering the Hamas-Israel war?
3: Well, I think at the very least we're learning two things. And I think our listeners need to understand also that we're dealing with religious and political issues of the most – divisive and violent kind. I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing not just with bombs falling from the sky, we're dealing with hand-to-hand combat in tunnels, we're dealing with tortures, some of them centuries old in form, some of them updates on the Holocaust. This is terrible stuff to have to cover but here's the double-edged sword that i think our media are caught in right now one you alluded to in your introduction which is the ability to write headlines and have headlines go out around the world instantaneously boy thinking back on my years as a headline writer headline writers are under tremendous pressure When you're working at one of the two or three most definitive news agencies in the world and you know that this is going to be read in every single U.S. embassy, every single embassy for the opposing states, Vladimir Putin is going to be reading this headline. Everybody is going to be reading this headline. How do you like that for pressure? But here's the other edge of the sword. Not only can you do the headline that quick. And not only can the news be produced that quick, you've got to write those headlines knowing, as I alluded to, immediately on X, or what we used to call Twitter, you knew when you wrote that headline that there was gonna be satellite images, and there was gonna be smartphone images, there was gonna be radar, there was, as I, I mentioned, In an earlier podcast, Elon Musk could release material from his own satellites that might contradict what you're quoting. So not only have the technologies of the news changed, the technologies of verifying the news have changed. And then you put all of that into a news system that is now torn to shreds by political, cultural, religious, and moral division. And these things are going to be interpreted and screamed at the highest level by people with, oh, centuries of bloody motivations to misinterpret everything. Have fun with that, journalist. I mean, that's just not something that's easy to do. What I think we're hearing is that editors – need to be extremely careful in verifying who they're quoting and letting the reader know precisely who they're quoting. For example, it is one thing to say, as the headline said, Palestinians say. It's another thing to say, Gaza medical officials said. Now that sounds neutral, that sounds like a logical group of people to quote, but Gaza medical officials is another name for the medical operation of Hamas, to where if that headline had said, Israeli strike well, – I'm referring to the original New York Times headline – Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, says Hamas. Says. Hamas officials, Hamas leaders, I don't think they would be in anywhere near the trouble that they're in right now. But they they wanted to use as neutral a language as possible, and they got caught. They got caught in the fact that in a war between Hamas and Israel, Hamas is one of the sides fighting. And if This is a classic fog-of-war situation. Would you accept Nazi government reports on what was happening in death camps? Well, looking back in history, we certainly would not have said, German officials said that, you know, we wouldn't have accepted that. Now, yes, I just compared Germany and Hamas. There are a lot of people that would make that claim and a lot who would not. So let me once again say that I think one of the ultimate issues that journalists face right now boils down to can you accurately say that Hamas is the voice of the Palestinian people, the Palestinian people in Gaza, the Palestinian people in the West Bank, to what degree is Hamas an acceptable voice organization to quote with authority without at the same time quoting what others how others would evaluate that information do you have to have a debate about information from Hamas we are certainly watching debates about the quality of information from the Israel Defense Forces and I think that those debates are worthwhile and should take place At the same time, Israel was placed in the unique position of being able to show reporters in private sessions, which left reporters sickened. They were able to actually show video, in some cases, from the GoPro cameras on the helmets or the hats of the actual Hamas fighters who fell in the combat and you they were able to seize those files. It's a completely different technological age, and to some degree, you should be able to show people the quality of your information. And I would argue that it's good to maybe wait at least an hour until some of the higher technological forms come in.
1: So that raises a question for me, Terry, and that is In the days, as I mentioned before, in the days when there was a deadline. Yeah. The deadline was X amount of hours before the thing had to go to press. Yes. And you had until the deadline to work on your story. You didn't have to get it in early. In fact, imagine if you handed the story in early, the the editor said, keep working on it until the deadline. We want it as good as Mm -hmm. possible. Keep working the sources. Keep checking, cross-checking your facts. In the days of the deadline, you had time to really gather information, search out all various sources of information, talk to as many people as possible. But there is no more deadline. It, deadline is now. Is deadline that part, is right now. Is that yeah. part of the problem?
3: Yes. Let me back up for a second, because there was an intermediate stage in all of this, and I happened to be writing headlines and sitting on a copy desk during that stage. I was on a copy desk in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, In the late 70s and early 80s when computers began to affect some of this. Then I went as a reporter to Denver, to the Rocky Mountain News, right as the first laptops began to arrive and affect coverage. And what we noticed is that the closer you put the deadline to the press run, the more likely you are to print mistakes. Doesn't that make sense? The cushion is gone. I have personally run to the back of a newspaper building with paper in my hand saying, don't run the press yet. We have to substitute the following material. In my case, it happened to be with the election of Pope John Paul II. And it came in that a Polish pope had been elected right as we started to run the initial press run. And we were able to physically ask them to hold up the press how many it's isn't that a staple from old movies about newspapers stop the presses right how many times have you seen that in old movies well that was a reality when we started introducing computers to the process even the earliest laptops and of course this would affect political coverage it would affect sports coverage of course you know the all-important sports coverage Laptops allowed us to push that deadline back and back and back until copy was coming in over a phone line at that point, not Wi-Fi, over a phone line. We were putting that into type and rushing it to the back shop, or it was being electronically pasted into a page electronically, and the presses would run. Could we then correct that before the second, third, or fourth press run? Yes. Yes. And I have seen stories evolve and change, and we used to be very explicit about that. This online stuff, where the changes are occurring in a matter of seconds, and then I think another critical ethical issue, and I use the word ethical in all seriousness, I really think that the ghost editing and evolving of headlines and stories that editors need to at the end of the story, at least say, previous versions of this story reported. I mean, in something as important as this one, I actually think they should have updated the story and said they admitted, and we, we know this now from their own note and from other subsequent coverage by National Review and others, that they knew pretty instantly that Israeli officials are saying, we are investigating this right now. You will have information from higher technological forms quickly. Well, when you run the revised story, shouldn't you actually say information available to the New York Times at that time has proven to not be verifiable from satellite images or something? I mean, if you're going to live in this technological age and we have no option not to, I would argue that complete transparency with readers in the online versions of these stories is the side to err on, especially when you could make a case that the early reports from BBC, the New York Times, and others literally then shaped news events around the world in the way of everything from protest to riots. People may die because of headlines in the New York Times. Accurate or not accurate, that's just a sad, tragic reality. And in this case, world history may have been affected by those headlines.
1: Bari Weiss wrote on this, she has a little experience with the New York Times, Uh, Um, and she noted at the beginning of her take on this that the editor's note, or the I guess you could call it not the correction, but the editor's note that went along with the correction. Oh, yeah. This was
3: an extraordinary note.
1: Um, that this note is is really not, she says, the longest she's seen from the New York Times in her experience there. But also, I just want to read a portion of it to you and get get your take on this. They're talking about what the initial accounts, what the, what the Times initially reported, what's new information. And then it says, However, the early versions of the coverage relied too heavily on claims by Hamas and did not make clear that those claims could not be immediately verified. That is a huge admission there, isn't it? Yes, yes
3: it is. And that's what I'm saying to where if they had clearly identified up front that this was Hamas, they were quoting, that would have been some distance right there that you would have had no trouble quoting someone from Israel or even the U.S. State Department, probably, off the record, saying, no one trusts material from the Gaza Health Ministry without verifying it. I mean, you could have had a quote like that in the earliest version of this story. And I think that kind of distance would have been totally verifiable. I would note something... Maybe this says something nice, or not nice. I don't know if the word nice applies to anything right now. This certainly says something about the podcast that we did here two weeks ago about these headlines when I took readers through the earliest version and noted that every single word in that initial headline turned out to be wrong. And Barry Weiss says the same thing. The headline was untrue on every level. The bomb was not Israeli, but a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket aimed at Israel that misfired. The bomb didn't hit the hospital, but the hospital parking lot. Hamas claimed that 500 people were killed, but a senior European intelligence source said he thought the death toll was under 50. U.S. intelligence estimates the number stands between 100 and 300. It wasn't Palestinians that said as much to the Times, but the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by – it's an office of Hamas. So. That's a lot of holes in a headline. And I applaud the Times for some of their candor about the inaccuracies of this headlines, and maybe even some of their candor in later stories about the effects of the headline. To some degree, we're seeing other news agencies, including BBC and whatever, beginning to to rethink their wordings, and stunningly, in some cases, they're still not rethinking their wording.
1: Terry Mattingly is our guest. We're talking about New York Times coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. He is senior fellow at the Overbury Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Barry Weiss's take on the coverage.
0: This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb and every student, parent and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, He created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools Solid, serious, substantive. You're listening to Issues, etc.
2: We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start. The foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org.
3: This is Kevin Hildebrand, cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Chorale, and a hymn festival at Saint Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu/gsi. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Terry Mattingly about New York Times coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. He's senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi, founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, I've got another question about that editor's note that appeared in the New York Times, and it really comes from Barry Weiss again. She, in effect, asks in her short treatment of this, how it could take the New York Times a matter of minutes to produce a headline and a story like they did, but six days to issue a serious correction from the editorial department.
3: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I also think it's there's an audio interview, which we quoted at the top of this broadcast. There's an interview with the key Times editor, the head of all of this. In, in which he talked about several hours went by as they continued to report the story. So to some degree, we're not talking about an instantaneous decision that shaped each of the variations of the story that followed. They, they knew that this material was going to be contested, and they knew that within time to have quoted Those alternative voices, those conflicted voices, could have been conflicting voices, could have been quoted in stories very quickly. And as far as going this long on the note, I think it's remarkable they published it at all. The New York Times doesn't tend to do that. Some other news agencies haven't done that. If we all started making a list of things we wish they'd publish editor notes on from the last six years of American life, that would be a really, really long list. I'd like a Hunter Biden laptop follow-up story on why that story was mangled, for example. And I say that, as listeners know, as someone who's a third-party voter in these elections. So... Barry Weiss is pointing out that there is information that is disputed, and I can give you a list of some other things that listeners and readers need to know are disputed. And when that happens, I think publications are going to have to say, here is what the people on both sides are claiming, and here is the evidence that they say backs up their facts. Uh, that may take an extra inch or two, but in online journalism, you've got it. Give the people what you don't know as well as what you
1: think you do. What are those key facts that you think still need to be run down and verified?
3: Yeah, let, let me give you a couple. And some of these go back to the podcast two weeks ago. So I'm, re- I'm recovering some territory right now. But stop and think about how crucial these facts are. Right now, as Israel begins to move into parts of Gaza, I simply think we need a complete story on the history from almost every publication and network TV show needs to do this. We need a story on the degree to which Hamas is or isn't using Palestinian people as human shields. Because if if we're going to have headlines about Israel bombing a refugee camp to kill one of the planners of the Hamas raid, and we say innocent people were hidden, collateral damage. Hidden behind the term collateral damage, which is such a horrible term, but it's, it's, gosh, I, I wish we could be more honest about that. Were Hamas leaders intentionally putting... Their headquarters, their rocket launchers, their armaments, their staging points, are they or are they not deliberately placing them in the middle of refugee camps next to hospitals, next to mosques, next to churches in some cases? Do they have tunnels where their leaders are living underneath civilian high-rise apartments? Now you say, well, how can we possibly verify that? I agree. It's going to be almost impossible to verify it, but I guarantee you there's satellite evidence. Some of it might be classified. There is evidence, evidence that is leading to some of these attacks. So the human shield question is something that probably needs coverage at least every other day. Here's another one. I continue to read about statements by Egyptian leaders that they are not going to let a million refugees leave Gaza and come into Egypt. Is that true? That's one thing. Why do the Egyptians feel that way? And what about the ongoing reports that Hamas has locked people inside Gaza? That they are refusing to allow people to get out? Now the existence of checkpoints and blocked roads, that should be something that we should have satellite imagery of, and I guarantee you there are people in the security agencies of Israel, America, and elsewhere who know about that, whether they can talk about it without betraying confidential sources, another thing. This is going to lead right to another question. Are American citizens being locked inside Gaza by Hamas? You can imagine how important that question is going to become as this more and more becomes a political debate issue in American elections, etc. Here's another one. I take it as a statement of fact that the Israeli Defense Force acts as a censor in some information about its activities and may have, may have, I'll stress that again, shaped news interviews in their own favor. I don't think that would surprise anyway. Military leaders tend to do that. But to what degree has Hamas censored everything in the way of information inside Gaza? Is is there any way to report what's happening inside Gaza without it being censored by Hamas? Now, reporters are capable of amazing things. I remember when the Washington Post ran a series of stories based on the lives of women living in ISIS territory. And they were able, in the age of smartphones and other means of technology, they were able to get verified information, first-person testimony, from women inside the Islamic State. That's got to be a situation very similar to Gaza. and. I know it's very hard not to portray sources when you quote that sort of thing. But if Hamas is censoring everything, readers need to know that. Every single time one of those sources is quoted, there should be some sort of reference in the story to the fact that this information is coming through channels that the leaders of Hamas actively censor. I think it's good sometimes— to let your readers know that they should doubt the information they're reading because the people writing the information down as journalists deep down inside know that they're dealing with censored material.
1: So the related story is media coverage of people who are here in the U.S. and elsewhere tearing down Israeli hostage photos. With just a couple minutes here, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I think the real question there is the degree to which reporters should actively dig into who these people are and what their motives are. Why are they tearing these things down? And this is all spreading online, of course. We have this is the age of smartphones. So we have actual video. We have people now trying to identify who these people are. And they're finding out that in New York City, they're finding out these are academics in some cases. These are people who work for nonprofits. And is it cancel culture? Now, we talk a lot about cancel culture. Is it cancel culture to simply identify who is tearing down these posters about the babies, children, teenagers, adults, elderly people, and I think still, in one or two cases, Holocaust survivors who are being held hostage. Let me flip that around. I would expect soon that there will be posters going up about people who are dying in Gaza. I think that's a perfectly valid thing for people to be concerned about and to raise awareness about. But all of a sudden, if we had rabbis and we had Jewish activists and stuff tearing down those posters, how would that be viewed? By the public, by journalists and others? Would it be cancel culture to be trying to identify the people if and when, let me stress listeners, if and when those posters go up, is it cancel culture to try to find out who's doing that and why? What are their motivations? We live in the smartphone era and I think Journalists face more and more questions about what information they can verify and how much of it they can and should report. But the Internet has got all kinds of room. And I think one of the reasons that some people hate Elon Musk so much is he's decided that a lot of these first-person handheld smartphone videos are going live on Twitter. And that's going to put them into public discourse.
1: Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. When we come back on this Wednesday, November the 1st, All Saints Day, it's Issues Etc. Reformation Week. Our theme is Paths to Lutheranism. We'll hear Dr. Ross Johnson's path from American evangelicalism.
2: The church's music from the second century. <laughs> The 6th century The 12th
0: century
2: The 16th century The 21st century. The best of the Church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org.
3: Essential exercise for the Christian mind. You're listening to Issues, etc.
2: The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmonds are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Adcrucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.